This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. And joining us again, Hilary Busis. Hello, everybody. We will be joined later on by David Canfield for our book club discussion of Elvis and Me by Priscilla Presley, a memoir of her life with Elvis that will soon be a film directed by Sofia Coppola, heading to the Venice Film Festival, among others, in the fall. But first, there's TV to catch up on, really. Um, and Hillary and Richard, you guys have been among the co-hosts of the season of Still Watching about And Just Like That, um, which is a show I mostly process through memes on what's left of Twitter, um, <laughs> but seems to be kind of on an upswing this season, which may or may not be to both of your surprise. It kind of felt like after season one, we'd more or less left the franchise for dead. Um, but have they figured it out this season? Yeah, I think where, you know, where it counts in a way, the latter half of the season um, is when Aiden Shaw, played by John Corbett, comes back, one of the two great loves of Carrie's life. Um, the episode that is dropping on Max, the day that this episode will be available of Little Gold Men, um, that I feel like is maybe the peak quality-wise. Like, I think it's funny and complicated in its dynamics. Hillary and I have some qualms about the Aiden of it all, but we had... Um, Hillary is uh, on the record as being anti-Aiden, yeah. yeah. so... It's true that... Yeah. I, it's going to say that on my tombstone now. It's like... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, we First had, line of my obituary. She didn't like Aiden. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be on mine, too, probably. Um, but uh, we had editor-in-chief Radika Jones on, and she's a little bit more sanguine about the Aiden, even though she does still call him a goober, which is funny to hear, you know, <laughs> Radika Jones say goober. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been fun. I think they've figured out the plotting and in the best episodes of this season, how to juggle not just three core characters, but, you know, four plus um, ancillary new new characters, Lisa Todd Wexley and his Nia name Wallace. is pronounced Anthony. Oh, sorry, Richard, not, not ancillary. ancillary. <laughs> yeah, you're right, correct. Um, but yeah, I think it's been. Um, I don't know how many people are watching it. That's the thing. It feels like last season, it felt like people were kind of chattering about that show pretty steadily. Um, I know that the ratings dropped considerably from season one to two, but yeah. So I don't know. Maybe Killer and I are just talking into a void. I don't know. It's very possible, but you know what? Uh, Ridika said this, and I agreed with her. Like, I will yell into the void as long as they keep providing me new uh, material in the Sex and the City cinematic universe. Um, I, 
I just really enjoy these characters and getting to spend time with them. And yeah, the show is ridiculous and the characters' lives are so extravagant now. You know, everybody is just kind of like very offhandedly like not don't even think about it kind of rich where they just kind of casually like order $26 omelets and like <laughs> buy these palatial uh duplex townhouses on Gramercy Park without like a second thought um but you know I don't know the the escape I I feel like and just like that has like leaned into the escapist part of Sex in the City so hard that the other I don't know, the grippier parts of the original series have been lost to some extent, but I agree with Richard that as the season has gone on, it's kind of gotten more back to its roots in some ways, just, you know, interactions between these characters that we've known for two decades, going on three, and that we care about, just watching them kind of bounce off of each other. Um, It doesn't, I don't know if it has great insights into like dating in the 21st century, but I don't know if I really care Honestly, um, it's just a it's just a fun time. It's even, you know, the things even that are annoying about it are like fun to get annoyed about, I think. So I I recommend it. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like we are living in a time of obviously like franchise glut and studios scratch their heads and say people loved Harry Potter. Why aren't they watching Fantastic Beasts or they loved the Avengers? Why aren't they as enthused about some, you know, one of the new Marvel Eternals or whatever? And part of the answer or the big answer is, is because those things don't have the same characters, you know, yes. like, like, like Iron Man's gone and Harry and Ron and Hermione are not in Fantastic Beasts. And so interest wanes and at least and just like that has the three core characters plus Anthony plus returning people like Aiden, apparently a Kim Cattrall as Samantha cameo coming at the end of the season, which could be the end of the series. And, uh, you know, that invested interest in that 25 years of familiarity still pays off. You know, even if I don't like changes that look, they've always said in interviews, Michael Patrick King, the creator and Sarah Jessica Parker, who's also, you know, kind of one of the top producers on the show, that they weren't trying to just mimic Sex in the City. And the big loss there or the big change there was that these episodes are not thematically constructed like the old show was. And I missed that because I thought that that was, a, you know, there was clever writing there. It was more of a writing challenge in a way. Whereas on Just Like That, things kind of ramble along. But as long as, at the very least, Carrie, Charlotte, and Miranda are doing that rambling, I would, yeah, like you said, Hillary, would keep watching it probably forever. Uh, This is going to reveal how much I've been checked out, but Samantha hasn't come back yet, right? No, her cameo um, is one scene in the season, possibly series finale, um, and that's all we know. And you haven't seen it yet? No, I think that we might not even get to see it until everybody else does. So we're all going to be discovering it together. HBO is going to do what they do for the succession finale for the Samantha Jones cameo. It makes sense. Listen, this is as important as like who's going to sit on the Iron (laughs) Throne. It's what is Samantha going to say? How many words is she going to say? What did Patricia Field put her in to say those words? Yeah. Um, For our awards purposes, I mean, I don't think And Just Like That will be in any kind of consideration next year. Its first season was not... Uh, either. But like, I think maybe the MVP of this season is Kristen Davis, uh, who plays Charlotte. She has really both maintained the original character while also pretty deftly showing her evolution. Um, Charlotte in this season has to do some stuff involving her kids and like they're growing up, and especially as it pertains to sex. And you, you see Charlotte become this kind of more 
And yes, it's maybe sometimes overbearing or or sort of rigid, but like a more sex positive person. And um, that's a feels like a far cry from, you know, young Charlotte York in 1998 or whatever. Um, and I think Davis, you know, is still great with the comic timing. All the actors are good. But like, I think, you know, Cynthia Nixon has been sort of up until recent episodes been sort of saddled with a kind of sad sack storyline. And, you know, Carrie's big acting emotive stuff was last season. But Kristen Davis, I think, is is the star of this this run. Yeah. And I'd also, uh, Richard, I feel like you have singled out Nicole Ari Parker before yeah. um, on Still Watching. And I also want to uh, second that uh, she's great. She's one of the newer additions to the cast as well. She plays Lisa Todd Wexley's, uh, Lisa Todd Wexley, who is Charlotte's uh, foil on the Upper East Side. Um and she just she has great timing. She fits into this universe really well. Um, and yeah, she's she's doing good stuff on the show. And Sarita Shottery, who plays Seema, uh, who is Carrie's new friend, high powered real estate agent. They've struggled a bit to figure out what to do with her. But in episode eight, so the one that aired last week, um, she has a great scene that I saw people passing around that clip online and, and, and stuff like that. So they have given at least some of the new people uh, a chance to shine. Not poor Karen Pittman, who plays Naya. She has been no. Think, she's mistreated. barely in the show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she should. She should sue. <laughs> I hope. I hope that's just because she was busy with morning show. But who knows? <laughs> so, would you guys place a bet on season three happening? I would say in the Zaslav era, no. Mm-hmm. I think it's an expensive show to produce. I think they're probably not getting the viewership that they would hope. Though, given that the recent developments where they have done what you know people used to do and licensed out some of their shows so they're not stuck behind the gate of <laughs> HBO Max like Insecure is on Netflix a couple other shows are i wonder if in just like that did drop on something like Netflix which has a much higher subscriber base if the show would like catch on in a new way and and maybe then they would see um, a path for a third season but right now I, I would i would be surprised if there's more that's totally possible and i also kind of wonder if given the strikes who knows how much longer they're going to continue, but I can see if I can see a world in which the strikes end and streamers are like, oh, my God, like we can finally make content again, like in that universe, like this is a ready made package, like mm. to renew it would be a lot easier than launching something different and something new. So I wonder if that would play into the, cal- into the calculus at all. They just have to pay SJP a little less, maybe. <laughs> <I don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. 
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, uh, there's a, another show that is starting again right now that's maybe a little bit more accessible. I don't know how many more people subscribe to Hulu than Max, um, but only Murders in the Building. Speaking I think of New a lot York of City. people subscribe to the Disney Bundle. That's true. Yes. I have I we have Hulu Live instead of cable. So yes, I am one of those people. Um, Only Murders in the Building is back for season three. Uh, it is a, <laughs> I guess, a probably different version of New York than in Just Like That, though with a wealth that you can't totally wrap your head around. Um, I've only seen one of the new season episode and found it delightful, kind of exactly on the same degree as the previous seasons. Um, I think you guys have watched more of it. Do we feel like the show is is keeping up to its usual pace? Yeah, I really like season three. Um, I have watched all of the screeners that they made available, which is, I think, the first eight episodes. Um, and yeah, it's really fun. It's a, it's maybe more niche than ever. It's kind of moved away from the world of podcasting and more into the world of theater. So if you like theater <laughs> and you like musicals. Is podcasting less niche than theater? <laughs> oh, totally at this point. Anybody can listen to a podcast That's anywhere. If, you, if you're into theater, like you're kind of out of luck unless you happen <laughs> to live in a place where they have theaters. Um, sure. Like doing live shows. Uh but yeah, it's like it's it's clearly made by people who know a lot about Broadway and who know a lot about the New York theater scene. It's got Meryl Streep in it, obviously, like <laughs> playing. Uh, I, I think uh, Savannah Walsh, uh, one of our staff writers at VF, uh, wrote a story about Meryl Streep in this episode. And her headline was that only murders gives Meryl Streep her hardest role yet, a failed actress. <laughs> <laughs> who is good at accents, though. I really enjoyed that Meryl Streep in joke in that first episode. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I think Streep is doing it because she just wanted to have fun, you know, and she's known the Martins, Steve and Short, for a long time. And the stakes are relatively low entering a third season, lower than perhaps her entering the second season of Big Little uh, Lies, which, you know, didn't really pan out that well. Not that Streep was bad in it. It's just that season was kind of disdained. Um, So it's just fun to see Streep kind of in the vein of Prairie Home Companion, just kind of like having a good time in an ensemble and, uh, you know, playing with these two veteran people who she's known for a long time. Yeah. And Selena Gomez. Yeah, and Paul Rudd is in it. Uh, Jesse Williams is in it. It's got a great cast. Um, a lot of familiar faces. More to come as the season unfolds. Ashley Park is in it um, from Emily in Paris uh, and from Mean Girls, the musical. So you know that she's going to sing at some point. Yeah, well, it turns into a musical to some extent later okay i don't think that's a spoiler to say but yeah the play that they're doing will become a musical um with music written by actual broadway composers which is also very fun to watch um and if people like ashley park in it she's also in joyride which came out this summer um didn't do a ton of business but ashley park is the lead and she's very good at it like a really appealing star turn yeah and we talked to her on the little men about it uh, a couple months ago and she was on beef she's she's had a really good year oh wow ashley park's all over the place i know I will say, so I, I did only see the first episode where Paul Rudd kind of arrives at this as a, um, a guy who's been playing Cobro, which is, I guess is their Ant-Man joke, which is actually pretty funny. And then I went to see the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, which we do not have to talk about in depth, but he voices a gecko character who says bro a lot with one of the Ninja Turtles. And I just, Paul Rudd entering his bro moment and like being exactly as funny as he is doing everything else. I'm, I'm really happy about it. Uh, there's also a good uh, Paul Rudd doesn't age joke in this season of Only Murders. <laughs> I'd like I feel like it's Emmy fate has been like kind of unfairly hampered. Like it just keeps getting overshadowed by like the bridesmaid. Bigger. Yeah. yeah. And like I don't th- I think this year I imagine is going to be similar. But the show is so consistent and so consistently funny. Um, I just feel really grateful that we have it. 
Yeah, I really want Martin Short to get... I, he really deserves an Emmy for this show. He's so funny on it. He's so funny. No disrespect to Steve Martin, but Martin Short would be my pick. Well, I think my, like, coldest take is that I think the two of them are just consistently always funny. And, like, Martin Short has played plenty of grading characters where I think he tests that. But, like, it makes me feel like a true boomer every time I watch this show. I'm just like, they're just the funniest because they <laughs> I mean, are. Martin Short is, like, one of the fun- – maybe the funniest person who's ever existed. You know, yeah. like, he's – I mean, if people haven't watched Jimmy Click for alone, I think a lot of that's on YouTube. That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, one last television thing before we move on to book club. And it's a movie, but it's on television, um, such as the way of uh, Amazon Prime movies. But Red, White and Royal Blue, the movie adaptation of the very popular uh, YA book is now out. And I've only read the book. I have not seen the movie. Um, Richard, I think you reviewed it and found found some things to recommend, right? Yeah. Yeah. I um, I read that book. I was going home to visit my parents who were living in Boston at the time. Uh, and I took the Amtrak from Penn Station, and I needed something to read. And so I went to the, the Hudson News or whatever, and I got Song of Achilles, which is a beautiful uh, kind of, I don't know, historical fiction kind of myth book, um, gay book. Um, and then I bought Red, White, and Royal Blue. So I was like, I guess I know what kind of weekend I'm planning on having. <laughs> and I started with Red, White, and Royal Blue because it felt like, you know, lighter lifting. Uh, and it is indeed. And like, I think after like every chapter, I would like kind of look up on the train like a crazy person just be like this fucking book (laughs) it's 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 very silly but it's the kind of thing and i felt this way watching the film as well like it's glossy and corny and convenient plot developments and all that stuff that you get watching i don't know anything from a hallmark christmas movie to your more prestige if you want to call it that studio romantic comedies only told from a gay perspective and that is still in 2023 a real rarity and um i can't help but feel giddy reading it and now watching it in a way that makes me feel a little embarrassed as a 40 year old you know but i don't know i kind of also at the same time give into it because i'm like is this what straight people feel when they watch silly (laughs) rom-com stuff um because you know i like silly rom-coms with straight people but this just you know it, it takes a different box i guess um in a way that i appreciate even if you know, it is a very silly story told in a way that, um, you know, w- could not be called complex exactly. <laughs> yeah, Katie, when when you said, you know, this is a movie, not TV, in your, in your segue, I wanted to say um, that it has the production values of a CW uh, teen oh. drama. So. <laughs> look, look, many CW teen dramas have brought us a lot of joy over the years. Oh, no, entirely. And like Richard, I, I completely understand your perspective. I mean, I had a similar experience last i guess either november or december um i watched the like hallmark hanukkah movie that was two like dueling delis like have like a hanukkah decoration combat <laughs> some dumb bullshit and i was like this is the stupidest thing i've ever seen why am i enjoying myself yeah, exactly <laughs> it was like oh yeah. it's because i've never seen anything like this before about like anybody with my identity so i can i can understand the appeal it is it is deeply deeply silly but it is not it's not bad. It's just dumb. There is a real exhilaration to being pandered to. Yes, <laughs> you know, exactly. When you are not pandered to as often as other people are pandered to. And, um, you know, I know a lot of gay men who have heavily rolled their eyes at the book, having read it or not, and are doing the same for the movie. And I was texting some friends last night uh, um, uh, when I was watching it, and, and they were just like, okay, <laughs> like, <laughs> we don't get it. But, um, you know, I, I think that there has been some critique about the book 
uh, that it was, you know, it's written by a woman who is queer, but is not, you know, a man attracted to men, um, that it is not actually written for a gay male audience, it is, or a bisexual male audience, it is written for queer women or straight women. Um, I see that critique and you feel it a little bit too in the film, but like, okay, like if like more can join the party, I suppose. And um, the film was, you know, directed by Matthew Lopez, who is a playwright known for The Inheritance, a big two-part thing that was a huge hit in London and then transferred to uh, the US before winning some Tonys. And so he brings a certain, you know, uh, for us bias sensibility to the movie that doesn't shy away from the sex that's in the book. Um, it's a little, there's a little bit less in the movie than there is in the book, but um, I appreciated that they don't totally demure. I mean, this movie is colored and toned like a PG-13 YA, but it's kind of an R-rated movie in, in a way, um, which I appreciated. Yeah, there's certainly more sex than you would expect in something aimed at a teenage audience. And that was the weird thing about reading the book, because it's packaged to this bright pink cover, and it seems like, oh, it's a, it's a young adult novel that's like, again, go, you know, talking about like fan fiction stuff. And yet, what's contained within, while having that frothy sort of easy narrative, is, you know, about actually two grownups in, in their 20s. I mean, between this and Passages with its NC-17 rating, I feel like, I don't know, we're at an interesting tipping point with depiction of sex and, like, how much it matters. If, like, it looks like it's PG-13, but it actually feels R. Or with Passages, it's NC-17, but will that stop people from seeing it? Um, it feels like some walls might be coming down. Yeah, I read an interview with Lopez where he said, like, that was my, that was part of my, my, my demands, essentially, when I was negotiating to direct the movie, was that, like, I'm not going to cut all of that out, you know, and apparently Amazon was mostly okay with that. There were a few notes, but like um, he was insistent that if this is going to be a story about two adults falling in love, uh, the physical aspect of that would, would be a part of that story. And so it is. Well, like this is maybe a whole separate podcast someday, but like in an era where explicit sexual content is very available, if you can have a story in which you're showing like an adult relationship, like that's somewhat more realistic and consensual and affectionate, like why not bring that to the audience who might need it the most? Exactly. So, you know, watch the movie, do what I did, like when reading the book. I mean, I literally, when I was watching the movie, I looked up for my iPad. I was like, oh, man, like this movie, <laughs> like, you know, it's just because it's so dumb. They got dumb, you again, Lawson. They, they got they you really, again. They really did. Yeah. Wait, you haven't uh, you haven't told us your thoughts on Uma Thurman, Madam President. I haven't told you my thoughts. Uh, Uma Thurman is playing the president of the United States. Oh, we didn't even say the plot of the book. It's the, 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 the bisexual son of the U.S. president in the movie played by Uma Thurman, who is this um, like Latino kid or half Latino, half white kid from Texas, has a an antagonist frenemy sort of in the younger prince of England, Prince Henry, so Prince Harry, and then they fall in love. <laughs> and, and they and, crash yeah. into a cake. They crash into a cake, and then it becomes a scandal, and then they have to sort of, like, because Uma's running for re-election, they have to, like, make nice because there's some sort of trade deal between the U.S. and the U.K. that could be, you know... Uh, it's so funny, yeah. the, the, like, conception that anybody gives a shit about what the first kid, <laughs> like, does, or, like, why would anybody care about the first child getting along with the Prince of England? If they were what? both hot and kind of looked, seemed gay, I would care. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she would, Uma wouldn't get my vote if they didn't get together. <laughs> yeah, you would turn Texas blue for that possibility. <laughs> exactly. Which is a plot point, <laughs> sort of. 
Uh, I think you have convinced me to watch this, even uh, though I had some skeptics. I like the book perfectly fine, but didn't feel like a strong need for there to be a movie version. But um, it's a pleasant way to spend two hours. Yeah, I don't mind that. Like when we talked about Heartstopper last week is like the post Barbie um, dose of optimism and red, white and blue, royal blue can keep it going. Exactly. It's August. Don't think too much. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Okay, for our book club this week, we are diving back into a pretty recent past depicted in Hollywood. Um, I'm going to try to pronounce Priscilla Presley's maiden name correctly, and you guys can correct me. Priscilla Beaulieu. Does that sound right to anybody? That's how I read it. All right. Anyone who is French can come and correct me. Priscilla Presley's memoir, Elvis and Me, published in the mid-1980s, um, you know, about a decade after their divorce and a little while after his death. Um, it, you know, it is the same story that we saw in Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, albeit from an incredibly different perspective. Um, I am no Elvis historian. I feel like I can admit that most of the Elvis history I know came after I saw Baz Luhrmann's movie last year. And I'm curious where you guys land on this. And it's my understanding that Priscilla's account of their life together has been questioned by people. Uh, many other people in Elvis's orbit have written their own books. There's an entire other book called Child Bride that is supposed to be another version of Priscilla's story, and um, we can talk about that as well. Um, but it's a pretty compelling read from someone who met a guy when she was 14 and married him. Um, and that is something that seems to be the topic of Sofia Coppola's upcoming movie, Priscilla. And um, I think that's one of the many reasons it's a really interesting subject matter for her. Um, but Hillary, maybe I'll go with you first since you're our um, book club guest star. I think you jumped at the chance to read this book the same way I did. Um, what did you learn about Priscilla Presley? Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll see myself out. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, Katie, I, I'm very similar to you. I know of Elvis mostly as, you know, a, a pop culture icon, kind of more of more on the joke side of the spectrum, I guess, than like the actual man until I saw the Baz Luhrmann movie, which in itself is, I know, not exactly a historical document. But yeah, so I knew that Elvis met Priscilla when she was young and that they later got married. But this book was wildly eye-opening to me um, and really made me kind of question the way that the relationship is depicted in Baz Luhrmann's Elma, mm -hmm. Elvis because, mm -hmm. like, it really skates by the most salient fact of their courtship, which is she is a child mm -hmm. and she moves in with him and just, like, lives there waiting until she's old enough for them to get married. It's a crazy story. <laughs> It is insane that this happened in real life. Priscilla Presley in real life right now is 78 years old because she was so young when they met. That is nuts. Yeah. And Priscilla Presley is still alive, was at the Golden Globes. Like it is really the, the scope of history that you know that she's out there living. And um, oh, this is like when you find out that like Martin Luther King and Anne Frank were the same age. <laughs> <laughs> the 20th century contains so many mysteries. It um, does. 
And we should also say Priscilla Presley comes up in uh, Vanity Fair's September issue cover story that uh, published this week with Riley Keough, Priscilla's granddaughter, um, who settled a legal dispute with Priscilla over um, the Elvis's estate after the death of Lisa Marie Presley. Um, you can read all about that in the September yes, issue cover A similarly cover story. juicy read. <laughs> I would agree. Um, all right, David, where were you on your Elvis history before you picked this book up? Yeah, I was in the same place. And I, I had a similar reaction to this book and this story. I was not – I just think it, you can be aware even of her age, but there is a particular disturbing power in reading her perspective on the beginnings of this relationship, the the nature of control that's just inevitable in that kind of dynamic given not only the age gap but his level of fame. And so every single – element of their relationship in terms of how they live together, in terms of what kind of life he wants to lead, um, takes on this, in my opinion, kind of really dark new element. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes it feel a little unsettling. I, I did find the whole book not difficult to get through, but um, you know, you're 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 very much getting the sort of in many ways standard first person memoir. And it's it's juxtaposed with the reality of the situation, I think, effectively. But it does make it, yeah, a little a little tough sometimes. Yeah. Um, and so, really, it was it was more. I would say it was less the the revelations of the actual facts of the relationship, and more just the revelation of really getting her perspective of being in it and what that meant and felt like, even as there is a certain gloss on it. Inevitably, um, it's it's quite hard to shake. Well, she's kind of the ultimate unreliable narrator because she meets Elvis when she's 14. There's nothing really about her life before Elvis, um, both because, you know, the book is called Elvis and Me. His name literally comes first. And she was 14. She hadn't really done all that much by the time they met. Um, And so when she says things like, here's how I really felt about it, when she's repeatedly insisting that they did not have sex before they were married, which, like, I can't dispute it. I don't. I can see why they would lie about it. I don't know. Um, It's just all from her point of view and from this really teenage point of view where even though what she's doing, what her parents allowed her to do, which maybe we can talk about, feels completely insane, that blinded love of like, he is the most important thing in the world. I will do anything for him is really understandable, even if it makes you kind of wonder what was really going on outside of her perspective at this time. I don't mean to trivialize what the actual reality was because, you know, it's obviously very complicated, but like in the form of a story that's being told by Priscilla through a ghostwriter, I'm presuming, um, Mm. I was thinking about like one direction fan fiction that like teenagers write where it's like, you know, they're probably about that age, maybe even younger and like sort of writing these stories about like, and then I somehow meet Harry at a con after a concert or something. And then we fall in love and, you know, and it's like, the way that the Elvis story is told in the early section of the book is like, that's kind of like the arithmetic that she used the same arithmetic. It's like, you know, I I went to Mm. Germany and I told joke to my friends back home that I was going to meet Elvis. And then I met Elvis and then it Mm -hmm. all, you know, (laughs) and it's just like, there is not a ton of in those early stretches, which are sort of when the problem of this relationship, you know, obviously first emerges, there's not a ton of, you know, the hindsight of adulthood, I think coming to bear on the way that story is told. What's weird is that it does seem to kind of creep in every now and then, every now and then she'll be like, and he really wanted to control me. And then she kind of brushes it away. And then like years pass with her just kind of sitting there in a room waiting to like (laughs) going to high school in Memphis uh, and then staying up all night with Elvis on Dexedrine. 
you're 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 at about like page three hundred when she <laughs> when she realizes I need to take control of my life. I mean that when she writes that pretty yeah. clearly. And until then, yeah, you have all these kind of stops and starts and this I keep saying disturbing, but incredibly disturbing <laughs> dynamic that yeah, there's a question of how much the author is aware of that between the lines versus mm-hmm. how much she is the author, sort of, not Priscilla, or the no, the author Priscilla, yes, uh, yeah. the, yes, and the ghostwriter versus how much she's you know just willing to disclose because I think when you have a gap like this compounded by the difference in fame and profile, not that there's a certain level of brainwashing necessarily involved in that, but there there is. Exactly what Richard's saying, a certain level of idolatry and, um, you know, a difficulty to see the situation exactly for what it is. The book well, was I mean, also I mean, she, she was she was groomed. Like, I, I feel yes. like that is a word that gets thrown around in like a lot of different contexts, um, especially right now at this moment. And it doesn't always like have the meaning that the actual like definition would be from. No, this is grooming. Yeah, but this is grooming. He found her as a child. He changed he you know told her how to dress he like gradually broke down her boundaries and got her more and more comfortable with like pills mm-hmm. and with the sexual stuff and with you know the idea of living with him like it, that that's that seems pretty textbook honestly and mm-hmm. at least uh, partly abetted by her family right you know yeah. like this guy curry comes to the house or or, or no was it the, yeah he comes he, to he the met house her at the officers club yeah uh, and he's like i'll i'll be there the whole time she'll be chaperoned and you're reading it thinking, like, when when my sister was 14, uh, any man could have come in and said anything. And they'd be like, no, you're not taking my 14-year-old daughter to some rock star's house. <laughs> At night. <laughs> At night. I mean, I know that, like, mores were different than, you know, certain cultures, whatever. But, like, it's just interesting that that the father who is kind of, the, or uh, you know, the, the man who raised her, her father, uh, was kind of talked about as this kind of, you know, loving but stern guy. And yet permissive to this thing because i don't know patriarchy i guess yeah so the thing that the book i have not read this book um child bride written in 2006 um by suzanne finstad but the argument it seems to make based on some reviews i've read is that basically her mother was sort of stage bombed her way into this relationship and like really encouraged her to go move in with elvis at graceland when she was you know 17 um and the way that priscilla depicts that in the book is much more that like her parents were like stern and her father's an air force captain and like he really wants to make sure this man like elvis charmed them into thinking that he had good intentions and there's this really like heartbreaking moment where i think she's trying to go to graceland for christmas and her mom like breaks out in tears and it's like what has this man done to our family and that's an interesting tension there and it's really possible to imagine that both are true and it makes me really wonder what version of that story Sofia Coppola's movie might show us yep it also makes me wonder if this book had been written not in the 80s but you know closer to now kind of what perspective it would have taken I don't I don't know it's impossible to know I was even just curious about the way the book was received back mm-hmm. then. I mean, it was published in 85, I think. Yeah. And yeah, our understanding culturally of this kind of situation has evolved considerably. I would say even just in the past, you know, 10 years this or so. This common situation so. <laughs> where you're in Germany and you're 14 and the most famous Fair man enough. in the world. Fair <laughs> well, it's it's just, and yet. <laughs> it made me think a lot about 
the Baz Luhrmann movie because Priscilla is not really a major part of it. I think there's a scene where we see him talking to her in Germany and she's in her like school uniform. It's very clear she's young, but maybe not how young. Um, And then she shows up kind of in the Vegas era with her like high hair and eyeliner. Um, But that movie was so much about Elvis and the Colonel and showed him as this like sweet guy who was like really overwhelmed by the system um, and didn't have a lot of power in his life. Whereas in this book, he is the one with all the power and he's, you know, domineering and like, you know, treating her well in some cases and really not well in other cases. And that's and the really not in different. Very much. No, he's not at all. I mean, you can you can see that, right? That like she was like kept out of the business side of things and just surrounded by this entourage at every single waking moment of their lives, which sounds exhausting. Well, yeah. the, the Lurman movie is so, I think, bizarrely kernel focused. You know, he narrates it. Mm-hmm. It's sort of, you know, his movie in a way where and that was one of my complaints about that about the film was that like Elvis is kind of this background character. And so of course, like him meeting Priscilla in that film is glossed over in a voiceover montage, basically, you yeah. know, and, and that's kind of it. And that's like, I, I'm sure that at the time there were, that was kind of how it was viewed from any sort of distance was like, oh, yeah, Elvis met some girl in Germany, you know, without mm-hmm. thinking about the sort of actual mechanics of that. Yeah, that she sat in Graceland alone for years, um, basically waiting for him to come for like home five and marry her. years. It's <laughs> cr- like she graduated high school and then was still just like sitting there for two years. Yeah, he sometimes let her told work. what. Yeah, and sometimes told what room she could be in. I mean, it's just it's yeah. crazy. Uh, I do I want an extended montage in the movie of her like wandering in the attic at Graceland and like putting on Elvis's mother's clothes. Like there's some like spooky like Rebecca mm-hmm. uh, stuff going on in there that you could really lean into. There's also the point, the moment where she gets a job, which is a particularly harrowing sequence in the book, I felt. And he makes her quit. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, he says to her, like, you can choose between like having a life or me, basically, yep. which is why, you know, I think even... To as much as I had ever thought about this before, I was like, oh, well, they met when she was 14 and like they like didn't pay attention to boundaries. But like he sought her out because she was 14, like because she would not have a life of her own. And, well, yeah, you know, and he and he calls her little one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, he does. It's, it's so creepy. It's interesting to think about this story in I mean, this real life um, in the context of like um, the controversy at Cannes where Mai Wen had the Johnny Depp film. And like, you know, she was, I think, 15 or she met Luke Besson when she was pretty young and had a kid with him when she was 16 and she's still going to bat for him they're not together anymore but they have you know obviously have a child together she spit on a journalist who was reporting about Luke Besson um you kind of think about the way Celine Dion talks about Renee you know which is not a not dissimilar situation with affection you know and Renee was the love of her life and I think that can happen but like I I don't know it's just like I, I think that rather than really dig into what could have been wrong here without sort of presuming something for someone else's life. You know, it's easy to see why a movie like Elvis is just like, I don't, we don't want to tangle with that. We're doing a different, we're, we're, we're just, yeah. we're appealing to the grandeur of the icon. And yes, there were, there were issues, but like, and I think that glossing over happens a lot, even within um, those fraught relationships. Well, I don't think it's hard to reconcile the kind of overwhelmed mama's boy that you see in the Elvis movie with the version of Elvis in this book. Like, it's two sides of a personality where it's someone who's kind of, like, doesn't have a lot of control over his life. So he's able to control this one woman. And, you know, it's she really suffers as a result. But it kind of makes sense as a response to the world he's been thrown into. Yeah, it's sort of like uh, the Tom-Greg relationship in Succession. <laughs> <laughs> that is That is, like, a much... <laughs> much like a lower stakes <laughs> version. But yeah, where like the 
the bullied person like becomes the bully around the person who allows them to like take that role. Yeah. Yep. I definitely never realized how many people were just on Elvis's payroll at any given time. Just like every family member and hangers on and he bought houses for all of them on his ranch. Like, and horses. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no wonder it was a struggle. <laughs> Yeah, I was also really interested in the things that she describes in great detail, which I guess she had like diaries from this time. So I would imagine that like her recollections are coming with like some sort of backup and the stuff that she glosses over, like when she says like, and I had an affair with my dance teacher. And that's like oh, yeah. one sentence in the book. <laughs> Did anyone uh, listen to the audiobook? No, no. Because she reads it. Wow. Uh, herself. And I think that there are some added insights just in terms of memories and things like that, because she'll do voices for various people and the voice of the character, the narrator evolves as the character gets older. It's, it's really interesting and it almost feels subconscious, but it does, it added a lot of weight for me to certain specific memories, especially the more difficult ones and the way she, you know, just the tone she brought to them, because in the book, it can be a little hard to glean exactly where she falls on certain stuff, because, you know, the overall perspective is the the deep love she had for him and, uh, and that grief. But you can sense more complexity and, you know, frankly, like trauma in, in the way she describes some things. That's fascinating. I mean, she's a consultant on the the movie that Sofia Coppola made. Yep. And so I'm, you know, what perspective does she have now compared to when she recorded the audiobook that she could have brought to the movie? There's a lot of potential there. Does that give us pause, though, about the film? I mean, you know, like, you know, I think one of the complaints about like Bohemian Rhapsody was like, yeah, but this is just the surviving members of Queen kind of like trying to insist themselves more to the center of the story. And like, I'm not saying that Priscilla, of course, has the right to tell her story in a book, on film, whatever. But like, I don't know, some of the perspective that we're bringing to it with our more modern sensibility, like, will that be lacking in the film because Presley herself is so closely involved? I don't know. I mean, and, and you know, is it really even our job or, or, or right to question that? If this is the movie she wants to make about that period of her life, then that's the movie she wants to make. Yeah. It's a sticky one because, I mean, I, re I read this book and I obviously thought about the movie after and I asked myself, how do you not really plainly acknowledge what is really freaky and uncomfortable about this? I mean, I, I just don't know how you do that. Yeah, we have a modern perspective, but I also think that there's just a sort of general fact of, of why this is as unsettling as it seems to all of us. I mean, it's been a long time since I saw Marie Antoinette, but the there's a part early in the movie where you see her kind of like being transferred across borders to change clothes and become French and on her way to being married off to Louis the 14th. What number king was 16th. he? 16th. Thank oh. you. Um, and you see her as a child and being really overwhelmed by it. But that doesn't kind of prevent her from growing into a more fully realized character who is a victim, but also like active in some ways. And I wonder yeah. if you can pull off something similar with Priscilla. I think she's a great director for it. I really do. Yeah. So I'm hoping that happens. It does seem, yeah, very in her wheel, in Sofia Coppola's wheelhouse, this sort of material. But yeah, you wonder how she's going to, how, I don't know. I, I It's good, I guess, that Priscilla isn't directing the movie. So you can maybe <laughs> get like an outside perspective because I just come back to like, you know, there's like a, a scene where she's like describing, I guess, doing 
doing everything but intercourse with Elvis and like them taking, you know, like naked pictures of each other or whatever and like going through reams of Polaroid film. And she says, <laughs> under no circumstances were his ideas perverted or harmful, which is just like, whoa, OK. <laughs> that did sound like, like a legal disclaimer that they had to put in at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like, how do you actually feel about these things as an adult looking back? Like, would you? I don't know. Yeah. I, I wonder, like, if she, if Lisa Marie had, like, come up to her at 14 and been like, I'm going to move in with Michael Jackson now, like, would she have been like, sure? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wanted to um, flag that I on IMDb in the cast list, um, Dagmara Dimenchik, uh, speaking of Succession, um, Carolina from Succession, is listed in an unspecified role, which makes me wonder if she's playing uh, Priscilla's mom, which I think could be a really fascinating element of this story. Intrigued. I know. <laughs> um, I hope. I hope. Any other details from the book that you guys want to see make it on film? I think the, Elvis's food is very famous at this point, but every time she describes making him a pound of bacon in the morning, I'm like, yes, let's see that. <laughs> let's see how that gets digested. I want to see Chuck Norris show up in a in a tiny, <laughs> yes, tiny yes. role. <laughs> yeah, because he was she had an affair with Chuck Norris's martial arts instructor. Was that? And then mm-hmm. sometimes Chuck Norris would also teach her martial arts. The right. the like presence of martial arts is like. Uh, that's like such a weird like campy like i can't believe that that's real like <laughs> elvis know. actually learned kung fu like that is mm-hmm. so funny yeah i want to see jacob Alorty be like what is bacon <laughs> <laughs> this chicken breast and broccoli looks weird <laughs> be careful what you wish for Richard. <laughs> oh i wanted to also flag that the uh, cameo from barb streisand do you remember where they meet her and elvis and elvis oh, is like what yes. do you see at elliot gould and it's like oh elvis you were so wrong. Yeah. Also, the description of Elvis meeting Nixon, um, which was its own entire movie. Once yeah. Upon a time, we can't forget. Yeah. Uh, might be fun to see again. Michael Shannon played Elvis, right? And wasn't it Kevin Spacey? Oh, geez. Sure was. Well, I guess now we know what we're watching next week. We'll have to <laughs> go back and do our Elvis. <laughs> is research. that what Billionaire Boys Club is about? <laughs> <laughs> um, Richard, you'll be seeing Priscilla at Venice, um, which is actually an interesting audience for this. I think we've talked about how some of these European film festivals can tackle some of these trickier ideas better than um, in the States. Do you feel like it's a good place for it? Oh, it'll slot really comfortably alongside films by Luke Besson, Woody Allen, and Roman Polanski. Yeah. I th- <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're going to have a great time out there. Yeah. I mean, look, I've said it on the podcast a million times, as have other people, like stuff about this kind of, I mean, I don't want to, again, trivialize by calling it just taboo, but like about this kind of stuff, age gaps, you know, sex relationship stuff, like there is a different European sensibility. Italy is different from France, but not that different. And so, yeah, I would imagine that the reception at Venice will be very different than, say, at the New York Film Festival, where the film will also be playing. Uh, well, we have a lot of that to look forward to. I would tell, I mean, I, honestly, I would tell people to listen to the audiobook. Apparently, that's really the way to experience this. But I think reading this book, it's, it's a quick read. And it's a, it gives you a lot to anticipate in this movie, I think. Would you guys recommend it as well? Oh, I would. It doesn't. It takes five minutes, and it is, like I said before, crazy that any of this even resembles real life. Like, let alone if this is how it actually happened. It's a real experience to read this the year after Elvis. Yeah, I, I would say that too. And I think Elvis the movie. I should say. And, and, and David, I think yeah, you read Elvis to Feld. Um, <laughs> David, I think I think your audiobook suggestion is is a good one because I have, I read online that some people really um, thought the audiobook added a lot of extra texture. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, so read our September issue cover story on Riley Keough, then get the audiobook, and then you'll have the full experience. 
That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Our next book club installment is Martin Amos's The Zone of Interest, which uh, was adapted to a film by Jonathan Glazer that premiered at Cannes earlier this year. Um, we're not getting any lighter in our book club selections this month, unfortunately, <laughs> um, but there will be lots of interesting things to talk about. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com, on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. I am on Twitter at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And David. David Canfield 97. And Hillary. Hillabuster. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the true untold story of how Hillary wound up on this week's podcast goes to me. Stage bombed her way into this relationship. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.